Hello and welcome to the Unlucky Frog Gaming Podcast. I'm your host Ben Porter and I'm joined by guest co-host for this week, Duncan Cowan, Chief Chief Minion for Tabletop Scotland. Chief Minion, I like that, I like yeah. that. Is that it's, not an, it's not an official title but I will, I'll accept that quite happily. Yeah, well it's in keeping with Dave's Overlord title isn't it? Yes, yes, we do have to make uh, make offering to the Overlord from time to time. So, yeah, yes. stroke his ego a bit. Absolutely, yeah, we, we so, can't let him get too, too much ahead of himself. Yeah, I'm sure he'll love that. Um, so this week uh, we're going to be talking about a little bit of what we've been up to, the scapegoat scandal. The scandal as it's now been dubbed. And later on in the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, teaching games, introducing yep. games to new people. But before we dive into all of that, um, what, what have you been up to this week, Duncan? Well, what have I been up to? Well, I've played quite a lot of hidden traitor-type um, social deduction games, so Secret Hitler. Yeah, um, which we played this we, evening. We, we played that this evening. Yeah. Um, I was not Hitler once, which is quite unusual. Um, we managed the game of Battlestar Galactica earlier on. I was not a Cylon, which, again, quite unusual. I was. Yes, he was. And he played it absolutely perfectly. Yeah. Um, um, Scythe, which is definitely one of my favourite games. We had a five-player game of that this week um, with one new player, one first-time player. Um, and I got absolutely gubbed. Wow. Uh, I normally play pretty well in that game, and I just had an absolute howler. But it's, it's one of those ones we keep meaning to play it because it's it, there's been a lot of buzz about it this year, but um, been been hearing good things about it. Yeah, it's it's a really good game, but you need to know what it is going into it, and I and I think some of the more mixed reactions to it are people's misunderstanding of what it is. I think because you've got plastic mech mini, uh, miniatures. Um, because you've got a map, it looks like a dudes on a map war game. Yeah, but it's an economic game. Uh, it's absolutely an economic game, and if you go into expecting lots of combat, you're going to be disappointed. I suppose it's a little bit similar to Twilight Imperium in that war is a last resort. It is rather than the default thing that you go for. I would say it's probably more of a last resort in Scythe than Twilight Imperium because yeah. in Scythe. Um, there are a number of different objectives um, that you can essentially get stars on the board which work towards your game end points. Um, but for combat, you can only get stars for winning two. Yeah. So you can have ten different fights in the game, but you're actually only going to get the benefit for two of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's one, there's one faction that you can do more than that, but generally you're not incentivized to fight. You're incentivized to maximise your production of various different things. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that if you're coming into expecting, oh, I'm going to be able to, you know, have a scrap for the, you know, the Polonia or Saxony or whatever it is, um, you're going to be disappointed because that's not the type of game it is. See that that was what initially drew me to it was I, I looked at it and thought it it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, it had almost a little bit of a Half Life vibe going on with it, you know, you had this weird marrying up of. This rural setting with all this yeah. weird technology, um, and then when I looked into it a bit more and saw it was a bit more of a worker placement resource management thing, I was like, "Oh, okay." Cooled on it a little. Yeah. But then I've been hearing a lot of good things about it, so you know, right, yeah, I, I need to get around to trying it at some point. Well, it, it was it was a project that I'd followed for 
a number of, certainly a couple of years before it, was it actually Kickstarter, came out. Kickstarter, wasn't it? It was Kickstarter, yeah. and I did back it. I backed it at the collector's edition with all the oh, fancy, just, fancy, just, fancy um, extra realistic resources and metal coins and all that shenanigans. I, I do like to pimp my games yeah, up. For, for anyone who doesn't know <laughs> what the, the legend, legendary, the legendary, box. legendary yeah. box for Scythe and Tales, if, if it fell on you, it could do some serious injury. Think Gloomhaven box. It's yeah. not far off the size and weight Sight, of the yeah. Gloomhaven box. Yeah. Um, but it, again, it was the art. Like you say, it's that kind of alternate 1920s kind of farming, but with technology that didn't it's quite, actually. It's exist. quite different from what we've from anything we've seen. Isn't it is. It? Yeah, it is. And I mean, I think the the world existed before Scythe. I mean, that art and that. Kind it's of like 1920, 1920 plus, plus or something. Plus, yeah. yeah, I think Jacob Rosalski is the artist. Because I think um, I think they've uh, they've since done a couple of video games for it. There's at least one that was right. that was if, on Kickstarter. Uh, Iron Harvest, I think it was yeah. called the video yeah. game. Yeah, Iron Harvest, and it's set in the same world. It's the same artwork from Jacob Rosalski, but it's not related to Scythe. But because the game is so embedded in that universe, Stonemaier Games were quite prominent in in kind of talking about that Kickstarter yeah. as well. Yeah, but, yeah, it, it's a really good game. It's definitely in my kind of top five games. Um, you know, I, I'll play any opportunity that I get. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, as I say, we'll uh, we'll need to make a point of playing it at some point. But um, this week, I I think I've, for for people who have seen our reviews, uh, one of the things that I've decided to do moving forward is the Trina test. <laughs> so it's um, in in order to get a a different perspective. On, on a game because when 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 you've been around these games for a certain amount of time and you get used to their their tropes and mechanics you do become blind I think to I guess the the barrier to entry that more complex rules and things yeah. can create so games that I'm reviewing and making a point of play my, with my mum so this week I was playing Escape the Dark Castle with her um I've I've been playing quite a bit of that. Um, it's it's a great little game, um, very little setup involved, and you can play it in under thirty minutes. Like uh, we we took it away with us when we went up to Inverbeg recently, and we actually played it while we were waiting for the bus. Um, which there's something to be said for games like that, I think. Um, and it's it's very much in the spirit of these old the the fighting fantasy, uh, choose your own adventure type games. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't want to talk about it too much here because I'm going to be talking about it quite a bit in in the review. But I played that with my mum, and I, as a reward for for her uh, for her services to Unlucky Frog, um, <laughs> we we played um, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective with her, nice. which she really likes because she's really into like you know all the Agatha Christie, the the Conan Doyle uh, murder mystery type stuff. Um, which is uh, I I don't know have you played Sherlock Holmes? I have yeah, yes yeah. I have yeah. yeah and it's again quite similar in a lot of ways to the Choose Your Own Adventure titles actually, but with a more investigative flavour to it. Absolutely, and and I don't remember Choose Your Own Adventure games beating you up quite as badly at the end of the yeah. adventure. You know when you when you think you've done quite well and then you get the Sherlock solution to the case and you realise, I I. Just I didn't go to that location at all, or what? what what's what's happening? Well, our our first because um, we're we're working through the Thames murders murders just now rather. Uh, the first one went pretty well. Uh, we maybe followed up on 
a lot more leads than Sherlock did, but we we got everything right. Um, this second one was a disaster. Um, the all the bonus questions we got right, but we completely missed the mark with the main suspect. Um, so th- th- it, it was quite humbling to say the least. Yes. Um, so yeah. ho- hopefully we'll fare a bit better next time, and hopefully we'll pay a bit more attention to some of the other details. Absolutely. The very there must be very difficult games to design. Um, you know so. the, the amount of of playtesting that has to go into those must be must be crazy. And I know obviously the probably the edition that you've been playing is the the more recent kind of reprint, uh-huh. but the original version of it um, had so many errors and so many um, kind of dead ends, typos, things that were just omitted that you needed to know. Uh-huh. Um, it was almost unplayable without an FAQ. Oh wow! Um, so actually, the new edition is is far superior to the the previous version. But what? What's quite interesting, though, is, in in my opinion, two of the best storytelling games out there just now, Tales of Arabian Nights mm-hmm. and the Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, they're both, I think, over 30 years old now. Yeah, yeah. And there's not really been much that's improved upon no, them, I there's don't not. think. I mean, I, I backed the, the Seventh Continent um, Kickstarter yep. um, last year. Now, I would argue it's a slightly different type of kind of choose-your-own-adventure almost... Um, uh, storytelling game that's very good but it lacks maybe the simplicity of the likes of Sherlock Holmes it's quite component heavy isn't it it's, it's, it's relative I mean it's it's all cards essentially uh-huh. um, but you know there's a lot of so mechanically um, there's a lot more to it whereas I mean Tales of the Arabian Nights is good but very random yeah um, whereas something like Consultant Detective um there's a lot more kind of there's a pathway through it that makes I f- logical I f- sense. I feel like the randomness in Tales of Arabian Nights adds to the hilarity of it. It though. does, yeah, absolutely. But you need to play it with the right group. That's, I that's think, true. I think with the wrong group, it will sink like a stone. With the right group, it'll be a fantastic night. Yeah. Um, there is another similar sort of game. I wouldn't necessarily call it storytelling, but it uses the same sort of mechanic as Tales of the Arabian Night, and it's Agents of Smersh. Okay. Um, from Eighth Summit Games, it's got that same book of encounters that you have in Arabian Nights, but there's more of a game to it. Um, you're sort of it's James Bond style espionage type okay. setting, um, and you're gathering intel and you're moving about to different countries to defeat particular baddies um, and ultimately trying to foil Doctor Lobo. I think it is uh, foil Doctor Lobo's you know villainous mastermind plan. Um, so that's a slightly more gamey version of Tales of Arabian Nights, but it's not as light and it's not as easy to just sit yeah. down with. But certainly, people. I've never heard of it. Yeah, um, which is possibly an indication it's a bit more of a culty yeah. one. But yeah. speaking of storytelling in games, um, we played Secret Hitler tonight, and it's one of these ones I've heard a lot of people talking about it. You know, it's it, everyone knows it's a social dis- deduction party game, but what I was really impressed with was the the attention to detail they made with, with implementing the the history into it because yes it is a, a social deduction party game that's very quick and simple to set up and explain but it pretty much tracks Hitler's rise to power oh it does it does which I was really impressed with no it very much does I, I actually um, studied German, German was my degree subject so I've, uh-huh. I've actually looked into the whole kind of national socialism thing as part of my, my university course um, but there are elements of, you know, it wasn't that the fascists had to do anything proactive sometimes to yeah. make that happen. 
it was the inaction of liberals or liberals accusing each other of things that allow Which is the fascist happening just now. Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, it is. There are there are some stickers that come with the uh, the, the version that I've got that are um, Trump stickers that you can put over oh, the the cards. Okay. Um, oddly enough, make, make make of that what you will. Yes, uh, I have no idea what's happening there. But the the guys who actually created the game sent a copy of that to every U.S. senator. So every US senator was sent a copy of Secret Hitler with the Trump stickers. I yeah. think in possibly in I think it was January last year, just after the inauguration. Quite so, a statement. Absolutely. Learn from history would be the yeah. lesson there. And do you know what? Secret Hitler does teach a little bit because you were saying even that they include a little booklet that they explains do. some of the history. Yeah, the the actual Kickstarter, the original Kickstarter, came with um, a little almost a kind of graphic novel. Um, just kind of detailing some of the key events in the in the thirties that that led to Hitler essentially being given power. Yeah. Uh, I think you know the the thought that Hitler actually seized power is it, just not true. It, no, it was a series of circumstances that allowed Hitler to be given power because people who should have known better felt they could control him. Because that's the particularly scary thing about Hitler's rise to power. He did it through a democratic system. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So. Yeah, make make of that what you will. But yeah, lesson from history. Lesson from history, and I do have to say, very impressed with Secret Hitler. I'm going to go out and get a copy of that great little game, beautifully presented as well. Yeah. It has to be said. It is. It is. Um, it's they they really channel that retro 1930s vibe. Um, but moving away from what we've been up to, and what a certain nefarious company has been up to. The Cads. The Cads. The Cads. Space Goat. Yes. Right, I'd never heard of these guys until you were telling me about them this week. Yeah. So, who are they? So, uh, w- without necessarily naming names and whatnot, um, this is it a, is all out there, it's, by it's, the way. It's all out this, there. This, yeah. The guy's notorious, but yeah. we're not in the business of... So, this is a company, Space Goat Productions, who had a Kickstarter for the Evil Dead 2 um, board game. So, they obviously had the license for that. They had a very successful Kickstarter campaign, raised something like, I think it was $720,000. They had you know, a large number of backers. So it's, um, it's not cool money or not level of, of yeah. funding, but that's still huge. It's still huge a... in comparison with the majority of games out there. Um, so they, they had this, and then things went very quiet. Now, they also had another subsequent Kickstarter during the period after this had successfully funded, and it was uh, the Terminator game. The official licensed the Terminator game. Now, that also funded with, I think, something like $220,000, $240,000. So not at the same level as the previous one, but still a good chunk of change. Still, still more than most independents can hope for anyway. Absolutely. And then what might seem like a fairly similar, a fairly familiar story to some people who use Kickstarter a lot, very little communication from the the backer uh, from the uh, the the company themselves. This was from, after they. This funded. was after they'd funded, yeah. so the money had been collected, and just then radio silence, a sporadic update saying, "Hey, nothing much to report," but then nothing. So people were starting to get a bit concerned. A lot of time had elapsed. I think this was two thousand and sixteen that the Kickstarter had originally funded. Mm. It should have delivered, you know, a year a year plus ago by now. He popped up last week with uh, an update to backers, essentially saying, hey, um, we're struggling for money. 
Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start a campaign on a site called WeFunder, which is essentially an equity um, sort of release website where you can basically give them money to buy a stake in their company. I think it's listed through the Securities and Equities um, kind of exchange okay. in, in the States. So essentially the message was, we've had all your money, we were basing all of our financial projections on having got the games into production by now, having sold some into retail, um, and then using that money to then finance other projects. That didn't happen. We need more money. Please, will you give us some money to this other thing? Naturally, that did not go down very well yeah. with the backers. Um, so there's quite a number of comments that you can see on the project's Kickstarter page where people have really started kicking off about this. So, I mean, I know that you've spoken in the past about Kickstarter is not a shop. You know, this yeah. is a give us money, but there is that risk involved. But I think the fact that it's not just that that original money has disappeared, it's the brass neck of then coming back and saying, okay, we don't have your product yet. We've taken all your money. Please, can you give us more money so we've got a chance of actually getting you that game? So that's kind of where we are at the moment with that project. But some of the backers have done a bit more digging. And what they seem to think, and it makes sense to me, is that the money that was taken from the Evil Dead campaign, so that's 700 odd thousand dollars they've then needed the intellectual property rights for the Terminator, which are very expensive. Yeah. So they've spent a good chunk of that money... It's Universal, I think. I think it was Universal, yeah. yeah. Um, getting the rights for the Terminator, thinking that they'll then do another Kickstarter campaign which will generate even more than 700000 Now, it, it is worth saying here, I think, that this practice, as sketchy as it is, is not uncommon yeah. in Kickstarter. That's now. true. That's um, true. Steamforged have been doing that, um, and I, I think they've, they actually suffered a little bit of backlash for, yeah. for God tier because they've still not fulfilled a lot of the Dark Souls stuff. And they're using the money that they got from Dark Souls to fund the next project. Yeah. But, as you say, yeah. there's a little bit more at play with there Space is. Go. So, obviously, the, the Terminator campaign made significantly less than the Evil Dead campaign, which has obviously left them in a hole financially. Um, so, really, the guy, the guy who's in charge of the company, he's not got a particularly good reputation, but he now is essentially lying because on the WeFunder website, he's making statements about all the games that he and his company have produced in order to entice backers to actually invest in his company. But he's using the games that he's not even manufactured um, from these Kickstarter campaigns as examples of the games that he's produced. But he, so he's essentially put it into his CV? Yeah. I mean, it's essentially fraud at that point, because he's, he's making claims in order to entice people to invest in his company that are demonstrably not true. The game isn't even in manufacturing. Yeah. You know, so he, how he can claim he's got two of the biggest Kickstarters of the last six months um, based on that alone is just, is just nonsense. You know? what, one of the things, uh, when, I, when I read the, the article that you sent me about this um, furore, was that he was claiming that Evil Dead 2 is the highest funded horror game on yeah. Kickstarter. He is. Which is just not true. No. Because th there are multiple horror games that have funded way more Co than that. Cool many or not have, you know, three different Zombicide games, probably six different Zombicide campaigns, all of yeah. which you could argue are, um, you know, kind of horror, 
you know, horror-themed games, miniature-heavy, and all funded well into the millions There's of dollars. There's a whole bunch of Cthulhu stuff, yep. which, I mean, if Cthulhu's not horror, <laughs> Absolutely, I don't yeah. know what is. But um, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah. I think that there seems to be a couple of particularly vocal cheerleaders um, within the that. backup community. Angry who, Joe. Angry Joe, has yes. got in on the act. So, you know, I think if things don't start to be resolved in a different manner, these guys are going to really take it all the way. Now, yeah. it's Kickstarter. You know, the money that's been paid for the campaign, ultimately, you have to write that off as just gone yeah. because that's just how Kickstarter are. Their model will not allow for that so money to be So where Kickstarter do talk about accountability, the fact is that it's really just a, a, a tip of the cap to accountability. Yeah. There's not really anything enforceable there. No. Um, and I, I, I don't know about you, but I've been bitten by um, dodgy project creators before. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, it was only the once, but it does happen, yeah. um, and there's not a lot you can do about it. Yeah. I mean, I think I think I've backed probably over the last five years something like fifty Kickstarter campaigns. Some some of them are, I mean, some of the Zombicide ones I spoke about there, I did back. Yeah, you got some a of them, of them I have indeed. Some of them are fairly kind of small card game type Kickstarters, and I've been generally quite lucky. And I would say probably only one or two have been complete failures. A few others have been significantly beyond their anticipated fulfilment date. That I don't mind. But I don't so mind much. getting it late. Yeah, because yeah, if it, it's still coming, you know? a lot of the time, if it's going to be late as well, it's because they're refining it. Yeah, um, a great example of that is Legends Untold from Inspiring Games. So that was originally um, kickstarted in I think twenty sixteen. Was originally meant to be with backers in January twenty seventeen. Still not arrived yet, but they've completely changed their artist. They've tweaked the rule set of the game. They've gone through a lot of blind playtesting through guys like Paul Grogan at Gaming Rules. And the ultimate product that they're going to have is going to be so much better than the yeah. one that I originally backed on Kickstarter. I have no problem waiting that length well, of time. Well, the, the for one that. for me um, was Kingdom Come Deliverance. Ah, yeah, Granted, yeah. it's not tabletop, it's a video game. But it was delayed by about two years. Yeah. But it's because it went from being this really niche... Um, sort of culty RPG to being a proper AAA title, like they they had a full orchestral score for that. <laughs> they you know like Brian Blessed did a voice in oh, the game. I love Brian Blessed. Yeah. So they 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 massively upped the the caliber of what they were doing because yeah. they funded way beyond what they'd initially anticipated, and the proof's in the pudding with that. It's, it's a phenomenal game, yeah. and you you could sink hours into exploring the Holy Roman Empire, which is. You know, I'm I'm a bit of a history nerd, so I've been really enjoying that game. Need to get back into it actually, but delays. I say all that to say delays are okay mm. if there's a reason for yeah. it, and then if if the end result yeah. is worth it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is another one that is currently outstanding. It's, I think again, it's about a year, year and a half beyond its anticipated date, which is Sentinels of the Multiverse: Oblivion, which is the final kind of expansion set for the Sentinels of the Multiverse cooperative superhero card game. Yeah. Which I've got everything else just waiting on this. But the thing that's holding it up isn't the creation of the game or the printing of the cards. It's part of the campaign was a box to hold all of the stuff that exists for the game. Mm -hmm. And this box is going to be massive. And not every backer actually wanted that box. But every backer is having to wait for their copy of the game 
because the box is taking so long to get right, right and yeah. to ship and whatnot. Now, I'm waiting on the box. I backed the box. I can accept that. But if I was a backer who just wanted the game itself with the cards in it, I'd probably be a bit hacked off, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. You know? Yeah, that's true. Well, more on the Space Goat scandal when we hear about it, but um, our advice is just to steer clear of anything that company's involved Indeed. in at the moment because the, the, the guy's got a reputation. I think it's not it's not just financial problems that he's had. He's also had some issues with personnel. Yeah. So the the evidence against this guy is that he's just um, a bit of a shady character yeah. all in, I think. So avoid Space Goat <laughs> if you can. But anyway, on to the topic for this week. Um, we've been talking a little bit about accessibility in the podcast recently. And um, we're, we're trying to put a bit of a focus on that in some of the reviews that we're going to have coming in the future. But we wanted to talk a little bit about teaching people to play. Absolutely. Because there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And there's a continuum in between of learning how to do it better as well. Yeah. And I think no one I think no one just suddenly knows how to do it well. I think you have to make mistakes and yeah. before you know how what mistake you made so you do it better the next time. But there's there's responsibility on the person teaching as well as the person who's actually being taught. And it was interesting, I think, uh, listen to the the episode with Mark McKinnon, who was talking about um, the person who will sit there on their mobile phone while rules are being explained to them, really maybe even half paying attention, not really paying attention, when it comes round to their turn, right, what do I do? Um, which of the 16 things I can do will help me or hinder me? You're essentially me. explaining the same thing you twice are. because of one person. You are. And, and to be honest with it, some of it's the difficulty of the situation you're in. I mean, it might be that people are coming and going from the table for one reason or another. Yeah, that's fair. So, you know, you start explaining something, but someone nips away. Do you stop and wait for that person to come back? Do you continue explaining to the people who are at the table and then catch the other person up later? You know, again, it'll, de- it'll be determined by the group that you're in. And if you know the people particularly well, you need to figure out how they like to learn a game. Um, it depends what type of game it is. Some people will like to learn by picking up the tokens or the miniatures or the cards and actually looking at them as you're talking about, this is this is how this works. Other people prefer the more theoretical, here is how you gain victory points. Because this, this is the tricky bit and this is, I think, the difficulty engaging what you're doing is that there are different learning styles. Absolutely. Like for me, <clears throat> although I'm quite an avid reader, I think... The, from my personal experience, the best way for me to learn is by observing. So I can only listen to so much rules explanation yep. and then it, it, it's like a little switch just goes off in my head. Yep. Um, and one of the things I've noticed when you explain a new game is that you you have a very succinct explanation of the rules and then you dive into it and your approach is to explain things as they come up rather than giving a full explanation of everything in that. I think it's an easy trick to fall, a trap to fall into that you're almost verbalising the rulebook in your own words in the order that it's in the rulebook because that's how you learned the game initially. And I think you almost need to turn that on its head and the, the first thing you need to explain is 
the setting of the game and the point of the game. So, you know, this is a game where we're on, you know, we're on a spaceship and there are six of us and some of us might be traitors. You know, we win the game by doing this. Um, we get that by having this number of victory points and then working back from there so that everything you're explaining is with a view to how does that get me to win the game. Yeah, because th- that's true, is that if a mechanic in the game makes sense as far as the narrative goes, then you can justify it. Like what, when I'm when I'm teaching people to play Shadespire, the way I explain how pushing works is you've managed to block your opponent's attack, but you've had to change your stance to bring your sword up and they've staggered you slightly because of it, yeah. which has caused you to fall back a step. And then you, it's like a little light bulb moment in the person's head because they're able to envision yeah. how that all works in their head. And like, okay, right, I understand how pushing works now because it makes sense. Absolutely. And that works for some people, but and this is a really out there example, but my friend Tim, who you've met, yeah, um, he, he, he cannot visualise anything he just you, you could say something to him he has no mind's eye so if you're trying to explain something for him to conjure an image in his mind it's just not going to work yeah um he prefers a much more kind of structured do a to do b to do c to do uh, you know and if you're if you're trying to teach a game that he is learning and someone with a completely different style is learning you have to be conscious that you're not focusing solely on one to the exclusion of the other. Because that, that's a point, because you, you could be explaining everything to Tim, and he's like, right, I've got it, and then I'm on the other side and I've just switched off, and I'm, I'm lost. Yeah. So I think in order to be good at, at teaching games, and this is not to say that you can't do it, but if you want to be the kind of person that teaches games and demo games, I, I think you do need to be good at reading people as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think there's something else, that, I mean... As you're aware, I've got quite a number of games. And yeah, we um, obviously you people at home and on the bus or wherever you are cannot see this, but we are currently sitting in what's pretty close to uh, a labyrinth without actually being a maze. It's we've got. I mean, how many Calaxes have you got in here? Oh, I wouldn't even begin to see. How many games are in your collection? Uh, 450 games, a 1,000 if you include all the expansion stuff that's incorporated into them as well. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. If Scotland was suddenly hit by an earthquake, we'd probably be dead. Mm. Or at least buried under a lot of <laughs> cardboard. It's great for soundproofing. Though, that's yeah. true. Um, you know, hope, Hopefully you notice the, the sound quality. Um, so what comes from owning those games is generally the onus... To, to learn them and therefore to teach them will also fall on me. Um, so I think the, the key thing is you need to really have played it before you teach it to someone else. There's nothing worse than turning up to like a you know, games club or something like that. Someone brings a game that's still in shrink wrap, opens it up there and then, punches everything out and then, right, and usually the rule book will get thrown over to me or something, right, read that, teach us how to play the game. That's not a good way. It makes for quite an arduous experience, yeah. I think. It's quite stressful for everyone involved, and guaranteed there will be a rule that's been played wrong that then people will say, well, that invalidates your victory, you know, that's 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 not... 
right, so, we should have played that. So, and it's a fair point you make, but you're, you're saying obviously that when you know someone turns up to a games club with a game that no one's played, it makes for quite an unpleasant experience. So, how how do you get around that? Because you're obviously like even you, you must have played a lot of these games for the first time. Yeah. Is it a case of being selective with the people that you're playing the the game with, and then you're learning? together I think there's an yeah there's definitely an element of that and I mean I, I I play with a number of different groups of people now now probably a few years ago I had not nothing like the number of games I have now but I had a significant collection of games but I didn't have a local games club that I went along to I didn't have a regular group um so when I finally went along to some of these places it was a case of just trying to find out what types of games different people like mm-hmm. and at the moment I've got almost one group that I play the Euro style kind of games, which are almost multiplayer solitaire with, and another group who were like the more thematic, um, you know, like things like Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Um, I like both those types of games, um, and I don't really draw a massive distinction between them, but some of the guys in those groups are just opposed to the opposite camp for whatever reason. So. It's about actually picking the game that suits the group that you're going to game with on that occasion. Um, you really have to... I mean, I'll quite often, if I get a new game, I, I'm a rule book reader, so uh, that's my bedtime reading. Um, you know, I'll read Swatting through all that up. stuff. Absolutely, I'll, yeah. I'll be sitting, you know, one eye on the TV, rule book in the other hand. Um, that makes me wonder what the other hand was doing, but let's leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'll actually I'll set the board up. I'll set up for a two-player game or a three-player game or whatever, and I'll play through a few turns just mm-hmm. so it makes sense to me so that when I'm teaching it to someone else, if they've got questions, I can think back to those few turns that I had. And even if I don't know for a fact the right answer to that question, I'll have a sense of where I should be looking in the rule book. That's an extremely thorough process. Mm. I have to say I don't do that. I'm one of these guys where... I'm weird. I'm weird. Yeah, but it obviously works because... You you know you've you've taught people of all yeah. levels, haven't you? I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and but what what I generally do is if I get a new game, I make a point of playing it in my flat. Um, sometimes I'll have a read at the rule book. Other times I'll just have a group. It'll be like you know Charlotte, Josh, Callum. So it's at least a group of people who are quite ofe. With a lot of the the trends and the mechanics in these sorts of games, so and actually people who are not af- going to be afraid to kind of say, right, I'm not understanding what you're saying. Yeah, can you can you go back over that again? I think that's quite important as well. One of the things that I was thinking just there when we were talking about rule books, though, is there's only so much that an actor can do with a bad script, and I think the same applies for teaching rules. Yep. There are some horrendous rule books out there. There are, um, and we we, as much as we did enjoy the game, we really struggled with the Dark Souls rulebook for this reason, because it's it's a big, like it's a big rulebook as they go, big thick thing, and there's no index in it, mm. so every time someone had a question, because I, I, it was my game, so I was like the de facto teacher, um, even though I'm still learning the game. So whenever someone had a question, I had to pick the book up and I had to go through every mm. page to find the thing and that that adds to the frustration and there's not a whole lot you can do no, about that there. There's not. 
I mean, I mean, you've talked about kind of keywords before, yeah. Um, in 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 rule books, and you know, an index is part of that, but also good headings mm-hmm. and and good layout of pages. But actually, when you're teaching a game, those are the callouts. Those are the things that. These are the words that you should kind of feed into that script almost yeah. as you're talking about it because they're clearly important to the game. So if you can bring that into the reason you're doing this is to get victory points or the reason you're doing this is to get you know reputation or whatever it is. And if you're using those terms that are used throughout that, that game's rulebook, it makes it easier for that person to link the action that they're taking at that moment with how they are going to get a good score or win the game or whatever it might be. It's like when you get a legal document, I don't, don't know how many people have seen like a big legal document, but a lot of the time the first few pages are actually this legal document's definition of yeah. each word. So it's like the, the two parties that are signing the document have decided, right, in this context, this is this what this word this. means. And that, that's what a good rule book does. Um, I had to write the terms and conditions for the Tabletop Scotland exhibitor pack, so okay. I, I feel that one. Yeah, yeah, I feel that one. <laughs> so, what what would what would be your advice to someone who is maybe they they've got a few games they they've got a few games under their belt and they're wanting to teach something that has a little bit more weight to to their friends yeah. who perhaps have a passing interest in yeah. games. What 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 should they do? I think well, it depends how you define friends who have a passing interest. If if they've played the kind of modern style games to any point, so like your Ticket to Ride, yeah. Let's whatnot, let's say they've played like Catan and Ticket to Ride, and they want to play something like Scythe. I think a good starting point is to direct before the the day where you're going to actually play it. Is say here's a link to a YouTube video of Radwell runs through this game, or John gets games does a run through of a few turns. That way, when they arrive at the at the game night or whatever, they're going to have a rough idea of what the board looks like, what the different pieces are, roughly how the game runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, obviously, as the teacher of the game, will be filling in the detail as you as you kind of go through the, the rules explanation. Um, I think that helps massively. Um, and it also cuts down on the whole kind of, oh my God, I'm stupid, I don't understand this thing, which is a natural thing when it's a a game that's a little bit more complex than something you've been used to. Um, I've also, one of the things I've found in the past is if we've got a a bigger game, so Twilight Imperium we mentioned earlier, we ran a six-player Twilight Imperium here about, must have been about four months ago. But what I did was for four weeks beforehand, um, four weeks beforehand, I did a random draw, we picked the factions that everyone was going to be, and I sent each pe- each person individually information about their faction, their special abilities, the things that they can do that others can't. And I had a, a messenger group where I sent through every day, this is how combat works, that's all I'm going to tell you today. Tomorrow, this is how diplomacy works, that's all I'm going to well, tell you of today. Of course, one of the things we mentioned is that in academia, like I, I um, probably about six years ago, uh, when I went back to retrain as an electrician to college and I was doing my, my block release, um, they, they actually give you about three days, sorry, three breaks a day. So it means that you're never in a classroom for more than an hour and a half. Yep. And it means that you're retaining the knowledge more because you have time, your brain has time to rest. Absolutely. Whereas if, if you're just constantly being bombarded with information, you're, you're not going to yep. take it in or it's not going to stay there. Absolutely. Now, I, I, you know, that, was, that was the method I chose to go down the road of for that particular game and for five players of that game 
that absolutely worked and they arrived knowing 80 to 90 percent of what they needed to know and the rest they filled in through playing a few turns just seeing it in person rather than pictures being sent in a messenger group one person didn't one person turned up having looked at nothing and that took an additional 30 40 minutes at the start of the game which then pushed us beyond the time that we needed to finish so it's yeah absolutely you can do so much but ultimately there is a responsibility on the person who's going to be playing the game to be receptive as well and yeah you can't expect to be spoon fed no, no. every turn I'm I'm not you know I wouldn't expect someone to you know spend an hour and a night reading a rule book for a game that I'm going to teach them otherwise why am I teaching them the game but by the same token if I'm taking time out to teach them it I expect at least the courtesy and respect to do their best to absorb the information that I'm I'm kind yeah. of taking my time to give them in the way that I think is best yeah and I think one of the other things that we forgot to mention is like scaling difficulty as well I think yeah. is important so one of the things that I invested in for teaching people Age of Sigmar, because I I sort of rationalised that if I rock up to a game of Age of Sigmar with my tooled up Fire Slayer army, they're never going to want to play again yeah, because absolutely. they'll just get torn a new one. So I actually invested in the Blight War box set, which has two little armies that are ready to go, and there's a little... A series of linked games, a little campaign yeah, that you can yeah. play for them. So, and within those box sets, there's enough variation that you can pretty much cover all of the the, yeah, the basic yeah. mechanics of the game. You know, you've got the Nurgle army, which is a very slow moving, mm. resilient army, and then you've got the Stormcast army, which is quite an elite but a very fast army that has quite a lot of shooting attacks. So, it means that you're covering enough of the concepts. You're giving the person enough interesting things to do yeah. without the thing being completely arduous for them. Absolutely. I, I think the Shadespire box set is a perfect example. Now, yeah. I, I've only very recently kind of started playing Shadespire, but I think as a starter set, that is absolutely ideal. And I've played now with three or four different people just with the starter decks that come in that box. Um, and I think that you know, just gives you everything you need without overcomplicating it, and you can take it from that point and go as far as you want with it. Yeah, because you've got the nimble, lightly armoured uh, Blood Reavers, um, who there's a lot of them, they can cover a lot of ground, but if they get split up yeah. from the rest of their guys, they're probably dead. Yeah. And then you've got the Stormcast, which are very elite, they're very resilient, they're very powerful, but there is only three of them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think another thing as well is, bear in mind... You know the level of experience of the person you're trying to teach a game with. One of the biggest mistakes I have ever made in teaching a game is with my wife, who is not a gamer, will tolerate playing some games with me sometimes, largely to shut me up. Um, but the first ever modern tabletop game that I played with her was a game called Archipelago, which is a fairly complex Euro game, resource management, worker placement. She had never played any of those types of games before. And I had learned so much about what not to do from how she reacted to that game. It almost got to the point where playing that game stopped her playing any games ever again. Yeah. It got that bad. So you really have to, you know, you're not going to start with a really, really heavy Euro, crunchy Euro game with someone who's only ever played Uno or Monopoly or Cluedo. You have to take those baby steps into it. 
um, and let people discover what they like for themselves as opposed to you trying to guide them to what you think they should like. And I think that's the important thing. Yeah. There you go. Some pretty valuable advice there, I think. If you've got any questions about teaching games, Duncan here is your man. So right into the podcast, we can fire any questions you might have. If there's a particular game that you want to teach your friends, let us know. And we'll see if uh, Duncan can help you out. There you are. We'll been, try. We'll try our best. You've been volunteered. The royal we, that is. Yeah. Yes. Well, Duncan, thank you for joining us. Thank on, you. On the thank podcast. you for having me. I, yeah. I know I'm a pale, a pale substitute for Josh, but oh yeah. no, 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 nonsense, nonsense. <laughs> you, you bring uh, your own unique perspective. West, West faithness to the there proceedings. There yeah. we are. Um, well, there we are. That's us for this week. Um, and for all those listening, wherever you are, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hi everyone, it's Charlotte from the Unlucky Frog Gaming Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Now be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. All you need to do is search Unlucky Frog Gaming. You can also show your support for the Unlucky Frog through Patreon. To find out more information, check out our website www.unluckyfrog.com. Thanks, bye!